0: My guest today is the cellist and composer Peter Gregson, whose music you've most likely heard on Netflix's crazy popular Bridgerton and HBO's The New Pope, starring Jude Law and John Malkovich. His output even reaches the heights of haute couture in campaigns for Balenciaga, Burberry, and Dior. He's now released his fifth studio album called Patina on the premier label Deutsche Grammophon. It's an unusual album in that it explores the theme of absence, particularly with the posed question, what happens when you remove a melody? Patina is his most expansive and expressive work to date, featuring an astonishing array of analog electronic instruments, a string ensemble, and his unique solo cello. This is the type of art that makes you pause and reconsider reality. It's not something that is just casual, but rather forces you to understand what is happening through a heightened awareness. My conversation in this podcast explores numerous examples in which Peter articulates this hyper awareness through subtraction, from Disney's Pixar and the concept of Uncanny Valley to Paul McCartney's recordings to photography in a Fiden coffee table book. While this might seem very philosophical, it really is quite relatable when you think about Andy Warhol's work, focusing on Campbell's soup cans or his icon-type paintings of Marilyn Monroe. Examples abound of this hypersensitivity to the subject matter, not the subject's existence in the real world. It's the representation of reality versus reality itself. Listen to Peter Gregson's full story in this episode. I hope it gives you a new sense in which to experience life, and most likely a certain angle that you haven't explored. This is the Classical Post podcast, exploring the intersection of classical music, style and wellness we dive into meaningful conversations with leading artists from an array of different backgrounds. Based in New York City, Classical Post is a touch point for tastemakers. I'm Jonathan Eifert. Let's get into it. In prep for this, a few weeks ago when I knew that you were going to be on the podcast, I was looking at some of your various credits. And if I recall, now that you mention it, yes, you do have a lot of works in films that have been licensed and such. I would be curious to hear, well, I've personally, but also our listeners I know would be very interested, if you could just name some of those that have been particularly noteworthy.
1: Yeah, so recently, Bridgerton. If you watched Bridgerton on Netflix, some of my music was in that. There was a big scene in the final episode with the, I think it was the jig from the sixth suite of composed of a beautiful film actually called Blackbird, directed by Roger Michelle which has uh, Kate Winslet, and Susan Sarandon, Sam Neill, Mia wasikowska amazing cast and a very beautiful film. They licensed some other music from Recomposed and then it was working, it was doing a lot of the heavy lifting so they actually ended up asking me to score the rest of the, the picture, which was nice. The, Paolo Sorrentino's The New Pope for HBO, uh, with Jude Law and John Malkovich.
0: I I love that uh, show.
1: Yes. Yeah. So a significant portion of that show is my music from uh, across my entire catalog, and then yeah, a lot of fashion shows, so Burberry and Balenciaga, Dior.
0: Yeah, it's been fun. With the fashion shows, how does that work? Do uh, designers or creative directors contact you and say we need music, or or how does that usually?
1: Burberry recently did their menswear. show in London for for London fashion week. And they had decided their creative director, they wanted to use one of my string quartets, a piece called sequence four, which is with a fast synthesizer and string quartet, but they needed it changed. The the structure needed to change to fit their show. So we worked quite closely on making like a six minute, 15, so it was some really specific amount of time that the journey around their set would take. Which, which is a brilliant challenge. Because to me, the piece is like four and a half minutes long or whatever, that's the piece. But they were like, no, we need it to be this thing. And then you've got to be able to go in and chop it up and reimagine it in, in their world rather than in, in my world. What else? Yeah, there's been... And actually ballet, my, my music gets used a lot in, in dance, contemporary dance, ballets, which I love. And that's a really exciting process.
0: I, I think it's really cool. You've broken out and, and done things, not just in a um, film way, but also like you're saying with fashion and, and uh, zones like that, that maybe people wouldn't think about when they think about traditionally a, a cellist then turned composer, et cetera. Yeah.
1: I love collaborating with people. I, I like doing things. I like challenges. I like finding ways to bring my music into other people's sort of worlds, whether that's a film or... A, fashion show or a ballet, it doesn't really matter what the platform is. It's is there an interesting angle for collaboration? And I think that's sums up my career. I think that's what excites me about it is getting to meet and work with some amazing people. I love tactile arts. So I love watercolours, black and white photographs, oil paintings, anything where you, I, I like visual things, architecture, yeah, the kind of the physicality of it, going into a gallery and wanting to reach out and touch the, touch the paintings or seeing, appreciating it's a, a two-dimensional photograph, but really seeing that depth and the kind of imagination, the imaginary layer that, that you have to go through to, to see inside a black and white photograph. You know, it's not just Blacks and whites, it's the kind of the graduation of things. And I think that kind of tactility, if that's a word, that kind of textural thing has really informed my approach to, to sound. I love music, but my big fascination is sound. I love, yeah, like really deep listening to, to anything and, and really go in on the, the sonics of a recording and the, the presentation of that. To me is so important and at least an equal partner if not in times a greater partner than the than the music musical content itself i think so much of what i try to say through music is done in a kind of through the format you know through the presentation of it uh, in the same way that I'm sure a lot of thought goes into whether to do an oil painting or a watercolor or a color photograph or a black and white photograph. I remember seeing this beautiful, I think a Faden coffee table, art book, these great big things. There was this beautiful double page spread. And on one side, it was this immaculate, like beautiful, kind of beautifully lit technical photograph. And it said, this is a photograph of a glass of water. And then on the other side was a, a Polaroid. And said, this is a glass of water. And I love this idea of the, the kind of hyper-reality of the representation of this is a photograph, this is the process that went into making it. And then you've just got the rough and ready, here's a Polaroid and this is the same. It's a glass of water. And I think, yeah, anyway, I, I'm fascinated by this like perception versus reality thing in, in how we capture sound and how we present our ideas.
0: It's very fascinating, and it's interesting to hear that you almost find that inspiration from the juxtaposition of these mediums in a way. Like you're saying, uh, the reality versus the representation of it and i guess even in art there's that realism uh movement photore- realism versus yeah. then obviously abstract or contemporary That's art right. which goes in a completely <laughs> other direction since we're talking about polaroids have you looked at photorealism versus other things do you have any thoughts on that
1: yeah i think along those lines there's a there's this whole thing in like in animation the uncanny valley if it goes too close to looking real your brain doesn't Associates, you no, know, can't handle it, which is you look at Pixar and a lot of their characters have these sort of larger than life eyes and slightly cartoonish features, but yet you look at the, the landscapes and it could be, it could be the real world. It's like they can, they could make it like your face, like be they could make it so real, but it wouldn't connect. It would have this kind of, this uncanny valley where the brain would just shut off and be like, nah, that's not real at some level and i think with where that to me applies it's in the kind of how if you think of the sound of a cello as a cellist you think of the sound of a cello the sound i think that comes to people's minds is the, the sound of a recording of a cello which is to the almost certainly to the ear is the sound of a cello halfway back in a large concert hall it's the sound of every cello recording that you've ever heard. But that's not the sound of a cello, that's the sound of a recording of a cello. And the sound of a cello actually is much grittier, it's much grainier, and it's got this real, like the sound from here is like, it's really loud, and it's got all these kind of cracks and pops and really interesting like dirt to the sound. And that's what I've always, that's what I've been trying to get into my recordings and get into my work, because it's such an expressive tool like how you create the sound before diffused in in the concert hall or the recording studio. And it came to mind that if you turn on the radio and you hear, I don't know, Paul McCartney or you hear Nina Simone, there's instantly you go, right, that's them. You can hear their accent. You can hear their diction. You can hear so many tools that they have to share their voice where A lot of that is taken away from us in the kind of classical string, because simply the microphones are so far away, like it gets washed away. And it's like, what does it sound like? What does this person's fingers sound like when they play? Some people hit down very hard, some people whisper quiet, and you get all this kind of different, I don't know, like like plosives when you speak. Some people over-enunciate, some people are sloppy with their things, and I I, am fascinated by that stuff. Yeah. But I think actually with the art thing, I got really fascinated by Christo, the artist who who wraps things. Got fascinated by this heightening awareness by like by subtraction. So there was one he wrapped bridge. I think it was in maybe in in Zurich. Anyway, he wrapped these lanterns that were on the bridge that people who walked along that bridge every day for like thirty years, twenty years, had never seen. And as soon as he took them away. I see where that shape was. I see where that shape is. It's all in brown wrapping paper, but it's all still there. But it's this, the presence of absence of the absence of presence, which which was something a really big sort of philosophical point in the creation of my new record.
0: I find that very fascinating. So if we can pause there for a second, but go back to where that idea came from. I'm Mm. assuming you found some other sort of aesthetic theory or art movement or something or even pairing or or cherry picking bits and pieces to put your own take on it any thoughts on that
1: i I don't know if there's a specific like art theory or philosophy i i think it's just a combination i love the sort of modernist like the or the kind of pop art lichtensteins or the, the andy warhols of this world where it's like really highlighting and the extreme in my mind of that would be Christo. this sort of Highlighting the thing, like you think of the Heinz Campbell soup uh, cans, or the the Madonna, Marilyn Monroe's, and all these things, like making icons out of everyday, and just going like again and again, this kind of mass of pop culture, and the and the kind of result of that is it normalizes it, it takes it, uh, it brings it out.
0: Let's talk about your latest project, what the album is, and why people should care about it.
1: So, this record's called Patina, and it's like an album of songs without words. So, it's very much the cello as the protagonist. I think I wrote it in this kind of stew pot idea with lots of things in there. It's really big and busy and loud and by gradually like keeping the heat on and just sort of simmering things down that some elements went away I would write a melody and then you build the whole track around this strong melody you have a harmony and a rhythm a counter melody, and all these things but then if you take the melody out the thing that's just underneath it has been upgraded it's like next in line and then you take and then you build it up again and then you take that off and you build it up again you take that off and and so you end up with this kind of really spacious music that there's a and, and literally there's a space where, where the main melody was, and that melody to me is still there because the whole rest of the piece still exists. Its presence is felt by everything else that is around was around it and is still there. And I don't feel the need to. You don't need to tell the same story twice it's there and it informed everything else and by removing it it allows the listener i think the space to to have a relationship with the music you're not being told this is happy this is sad this is this is that you're not being shown everything and by giving people that space to listen i hope it's allows you to listen again and again and find new things and hear new implications a bit like those books when you were a kid you could create your own ending do you want to open the door on the left or the door on the right if let turn to page 235 turn to, i just love this idea that if you allow people that moment to like really internalize something they can it can change their mind And if you listen to a piece of music on a happy day it, it can heighten your mood Or if you listen on a sad day, it can really help. There could be catharsis or it can delve you deeper into that. It's like smoker's logic. They need a cigarette to wake up in the morning and they need a cigarette to go to bed at night. It's that really. It's it's music that I hope can develop in your mind with listening over time.
0: And I think uh, people would be interested to know that this is on Deutsche Grammophon. Where does this particular album fall in line with your other recordings?
1: So my last record was Bach recomposed, which was the follow-on to Max Richter's um, Vivaldi Four Seasons recomposed. That was my first record with DG, and that's that was a great experience, an amazing journey. Managed to tour it all around the world. It's been licensed into hundreds of films, TV shows, adverts, everything. And so then this is my, I think my fifth like studio album but it feels like this to me feels like the one that I'm really excited about I'm really proud of this it does everything I really we worked really hard on not it didn't work hard on the others but this feels like exactly the record I wanted to make so this is yeah following on from my previous records it very much follows this kind of It's with string orchestra, synthesizers, and solo cello, but this feels like the most mature version of itself.
0: Thanks for listening to the Classical Post podcast. Explore more insightful content on our website at classicalpost.com, where we share original perspectives, listening guides to new recordings, and conversations with the leading artists Stay abreast of classical music, style, and wellness by signing up for our monthly briefing delivered directly to your inbox. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Eifert. Thanks for listening.